Last time we looked at, at uh, Proverbs chapter 4 uh, in our evening service and we looked at the anatomy of discipleship. Uh, we looked at how the, um, uh, the word of God was applicable to all that we say and hear and do with our hands, even with our feet where we go. And it was uh, analogous to what Paul says in uh, in Romans, to present our members as instruments of righteousness, to present all that we are, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, to God uh, to serve Him. And in a very real way, that is practically applied here in this chapter. As the uh, father who is speaking to his son goes on to talk about, uh, in a very real example, the idea of how that is expressed um, in a physical sexual relationships. The Bible is not shy in terms of talking about these matters. Uh, it's very open about sexual sin and sexual joy. It's something that God created, uh, we, as we see in the first uh, few chapters of Genesis. And God created uh, a marriage for a particular purpose, not only for procreation, but also, as we see in this chapter, for the delight of husband and wife. And so the Bible is not shy in talking about these things. But it also guards us, because our sexual nature and sexual drive, it can be a very powerful thing. Mix that with the fallen nature that we have and it can be a very dangerous thing as well. And so it is something that the Bible speaks about. It is something that the Bible um, gives us examples of. Uh, for example, David. Uh, it, it, we, we see about Joseph, as Joseph was put upon by Potiphar's wife. We have examples like this in the Bible. And of course, we have the book of Proverbs. We have uh, what we see in the New Testament as Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about the relationship between men and women and talks very openly about what that relationship should look like. But he, is, he talks here, he begins by, uh, as he speaks to this young son, uh, warning him about what is out there, the good and the bad, where he should be looking, where he should not be looking. And warning him that, in this world, there are many traps and dangers. And of course, what we see going on here uh, is he's using this example of the adulterous woman in the first part of this chapter as a kind of a summary. It's really a kind of a catch-all uh, uh, idea here to describe uh, all kind of sexual sin. So he's not just talking about... Uh, 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 a young man and a woman, an adulterous woman. It, it, really, what you can see in this is how that could be applied to uh, a young woman and an older man, or a, a, a man who himself is adulterous. And so it's, he's really applying it very broadly in thinking about sexual sin in general. Uh, as Paul talks about flee sexual immorality, and that again, as if we think about our own modern context in terms of movies and internet and all of those things, uh, 
again, it's a catch-all. So it's, what he's talking about here is not just one narrow application of the sexual ethic. He's talking in, in a broad uh, uh, way about guarding the heart. That's what we saw back in verse 23 of the last chapter. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it uh, flow the springs of life. And of course, in this chapter, he talks about the springs. He talks about water. He talks about rivers and, and that kind of thing. And so, it, that is very broadly taken there in terms of the ears, the mouth, the feet, uh, all of those things in chapter 4. And so, when he talks about the adulterous woman, we could equally apply it to the adulterous man. Uh, we could uh, go beyond simply uh, the uh, adulterous uh, relationship that he's talking about here and apply it to sexual sin in general. So we're not looking at something very particularly narrow. But he, he does talk here uh, about this forbidden woman. So he begins with this idea of preparation. And then, secondly, we're going to see the precautions. Preparation and precautions and then practice. What, what are the right practices that he encourages his son toward? First, he has to be prepared. He has to know what's out there. He has to be prepared for the, these dangers and traps that the devil is always trying to set. My son, he says, be attentive to my wisdom. Don't think you know it all. Don't think you've lived. But be attentive to my wisdom, to where I'm coming from. Incline your ear to my understanding. Again, we have that repetitive sense, don't we? Where he's trying to get these words out in, in a very intense way by repeating things. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. And so his lips should not speak himself what is inconsistent with knowledge or uh, wisdom. So he is very in intense when he is talking about this idea of sexual sin. Because as we'll see, he is saying that it is something that can swallow you whole. To give yourself over to sexual sin can be the end of your life. And we've seen that, haven't we? With young people who have uh, engaged sexually uh, before marriage, maybe in high school or university, and their lives suddenly came to an end. They started to have to uh, put things together at a very young age. And all those possibilities that lay before them have now come to, uh, to a, a, a different expression. And so... Uh, he is warning his son about that. Now, we know that God, in His grace, is able to come in and to redeem those situations and turn things around wonderfully, and we, we thank God for that. But that's not always the case. Uh, oftentimes, it lends itself to societal destruction, as we see in the United States, as we see in Canada, where... Uh, uh, where there is no father in the in the uh, in the home, I think I don't know what uh, uh, program it was. Was these daytime talk shows where they had several men sitting in, a, in in the front row, and they would go up to each one, and uh, each father would say, "I have 
ten children. Now, the, the, uh, it was shocking. Another one would say, I have five children from four women. Or I have, uh, you know, uh, eight children from three women. And this is, this is how they were speaking without really much humility. But all of these children growing up without fathers. And so it has an implication uh, for the society itself. And of course it touches every area of society from the church to the world as a whole. And so the father is very intense here about warning his son about what, what steps he would take. And that all of these things start in the heart. Ecclesiastes 12 says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Think of that. Not just remember your God, but remember your Creator. What did God create? How did God create? He created man and woman. He created male and female. He created them sexual beings. He created them to express that within the confines of marriage. So, Remember your Creator. Think about the designs of the world that are before you. And we see that again come crashing down around us. Uh, in our world where there, we have never seen such a radical attack on God's creation as we have done. And we're seeing the fruits of this in our world and in our society and how much more uh, uh, we need to talk about these things now, chapters like this can be very awkward to talk about sometimes and sometimes we shy away from these things but more than ever we need to be talking and discussing the things of this nature and to see what does the Bible say on it and so he talks about this forbidden woman for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. She offers pleasure. Her, her lips are sweet as honey. In other words, she is seductive with the use of her words. Her words also are smoother than oil. They are able to soften and break down any kind of obje moral objections that you have. She's enable she enables you to come over that threshold that perhaps you have set in your conscience. Well, that, I think that's right. Or, or I, I think that's wrong. And I shouldn't cross over that threshold. But her seductive words, because they're s s uh, smoother and, s and as soft as oil, are able to break down those barriers and carry the young man across the threshold. That's why sexuality has been employed so much in commercials, in comedy, in movies, and all of these things. Because it carries such a powerful message. And so with these words, she is able to address uh, the young man's ego and, and soften any kind of uh, objections that the young man might have. And so the father warns him straight off. Keep away from her, he says. Uh, in the end, her, uh, uh, her, uh, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a double-edged sword. 
And so uh, the, the adulteress has no direction in life. She lives for the moment. And this is what she's enticing the young man into. Live for the moment. That's often a danger that we all fall into, don't we? Living for the moment. Forget about what the consequences are. And just live for the time at hand. And so he's preparing his son. He, he is, is preparing the son also by showing to him what the, the, uh, um, the dangers of that are. He says here, uh, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Wormwood here is a, a kind of a metaphor for sorrow and, and calamity and, and these sorts of things that will come upon the young person. The two-edged sword means that there's no escaping. If it, it can cut this way and that way. That in the end, it will lead to ultimate destruction. There's no escaping the pain and the suffering and the agony that this will bring in its wake. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow to the path of Sheol. That's where she's going. That's the path that she's on. And we've been speaking about that path uh, a lot in Proverbs, haven't we? And he says in no uncertain terms that the path that she is on is going in one direction. And it is going down to the grave. It's going to hell itself. And again, please don't confine this simply to an adulterous woman. He's talking broadly here about all who live for the satisfaction of sexual sin. And to attach ourselves to that and think that that's where real pleasure is and that that's where real joy is, is to, is to follow in that path along with that person. We were seeing this morning, as darkness engulfed Jesus, we were seeing a visible picture of what would come upon all who would reject the Gospel. As we see the darkness engulfing Him and, and the forsakenness and, the, and the, the being cut off from God. And we saw in that a picture of this is what will happen to the wicked. This is what will happen to all who reject the Gospel. And the Father is trying to paint this very colorful picture for His Son to say, Son, you know what wormwood is. You know what a double-edged sword is. He's pulling in all of these metaphors to say, Son, in the end, no matter how attractive it may look like, no matter what the world is saying about it, no matter how one's friends are trying to entice you in that direction. Son, this is where it will lead. This is where it is going. And that's why he says at the very beginning of this book, Son, give me your heart. Don't give your heart to your friends. Don't give your heart to someone who does not have your higher interests in mind. But give me your heart. It involves then the loss of one's reputation. Look at verses 7-9. to nine. And now, O son, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep away from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house 
of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. I wouldn't listen to my parents. I wouldn't listen to people who are wiser than me. I wouldn't even listen to the Bible when it was preached. How I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructions. I am at the brink of ruin in the assembled congregation. So he speaks there of various things. The loss of reputation. She will take your honor away. Loss of, loss of wealth. Loss of strength. Loss of health. And of course all these things are attendant with sexual sin, aren't they? One person I was reading uh, told the story of Lord Byron who was a poet and a playwright. And uh, he was known as the bad boy of the 19th century. A very loose living kind of person. A romantic poet. And he was in Greece, it says, on his 36th birthday and alone by himself. And this is how he describes his time there. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and the fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. In other words, the writer says, I am 36 and I am already old. All I have left is VD and depression. Where are my drinking buddies now when I need them? This is Lord Byron, one of the most celebrated poets and playwrights of, of all uh, English writing history. And yet this was his life. This is how he characterized himself at his 36th birthday. And he's a living example of what the writer of Proverbs is trying to get across here. This is where it leads. It leads to a shortened life. It leads to a, 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 a kneecapped life. It leads to a life uh, uh, of, of, of wastefulness, a loss of honor, a loss of strength, a loss of the good things that God has invested us with to live for His glory. Even the loss of shame, the loss of self-respect, in, as he says there in verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. Verse 14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. In other words, he is thinking there of the, the, the shame that would come not only in society, broadly speaking, but amongst the, the people of God. The religious people of God. The, the assembled congregation there. And so he, he, this itself becomes a matter of pain and grief for him. That he is letting those around him down those who expect him to live according to a different standard not just the world standards he says that's one thing but i have fallen in the eyes of those in the congregation among god's people who nurtured me who maybe prayed for me and and guided me and direct, wanted to wanted me to walk in a certain path and and the shame of facing them is particularly painful i'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And then he speaks in verses 23 and uh, uh, um, 21 to 23, rather, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. 
The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. In other words, the ultimate judge, the, the one to whom he must give an account ultimately is not even his parents, not even society, not even the congregation, but the Lord Himself. He must face that particular judgment. And it could issue if he is not brought back by God's grace to the loss of his own soul. So the Father is intense in talking about the dangers of sexual sin and where that leads. Chapter 6, he says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, you cannot go down that road and not be affected by it. Whether it's an adulterous relationship or whether it's online pornography or whether it's some program on Netflix or whatever it is, we are affected by it. And these things war against the soul as Peter says that we are to we are to separate ourselves from the lusts that war against the soul that's very powerful language and so the writer says can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned you can no more dally in sexual sin than you can walk around holding on to fire holding coals close to your chest like this and not be burned. And so does what, does what we look at on the computer or TV screen uh, 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 draw us closer to God or closer to, as it were, this woman's door or this man's door? What has our week been like? What are our practices? Where, where do we allow ourselves to go? And are we safeguarding our heart as we were seeing last week with our ears, with our eyes, with our feet, with our hands? Are we using all these things in the employment of drawing closer and closer to God? In contrast, we can think of Joseph who when he was again put upon by Potiphar's wife, she was after him day after day after day. Come and, and sleep with me, she said. And to the one point where she grabbed on to Joseph and he ran away. How can I do this thing and sin against God? That was his, that's what came out of Joseph. How do you get to a place like that? You see, we don't just find ourselves in the situation and then hope for the best. No, we prepare. Joseph prepared. You can bet he prepared. He would start to see what situation he was in. I am far away from home. Nobody's going to see. Nobody's going to know. But I'm in the stream of God's love and redemption. I am part of something greater than what's going on here. And though I am far away from my family, and though I won't be caught by anyone who I know, I must then be even more prepared to deal with the onslaught of sexual sin. And so he thinks of Potiphar's wife. He said, where could this go? What will I do in this situation? Am I prepared to run when the time comes? 
How can I do this thing and sin against God? He loved God. That's what drove him away from her. That's what allowed him to escape. And he paid the price, didn't he? Ultimately, he was charged by Potiphar's wife with, with uh, 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 attempted rape. Of course, she lied. But young people will also pay the price for fidelity by being mocked by their friends, their buddies, who are maybe going down that road. Haven't you, haven't you gone that far with a, a, a girl? Or haven't you gone that far with a guy? What's wrong with you? This is 2022. And they'll mock, they'll joke, they'll do all these things to break the person down. And their words become like the honey and the oil to soften the person up. And so, just as Joseph paid a price for being faithful, it doesn't say that we're not going to go unharmed in, 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 in taking up our cross and following God in this way. But at the end of the day, Joseph was vindicated. But that's where living in community with God's people is so important. Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, was ready to pay the price. He knew... Because of his love for God, he could not sin against God. I wonder if that's where you and I are at tonight. Are we cultivating a love for God? You see, you can't, this cannot happen in a vacuum. This cannot happen without, with preparation first. You've got to be loving God. So that when that person comes along who is outwardly attractive or this, that, or the other, and maybe your heart is drawn to them for the wrong reasons, you're able to say, though it may be hard, and though it may be a very difficult thing to say, say, my love for God dictates what I do in this situation. See, that, that's where we have to we, we have to be doing we what we have to be doing now is cultivating that love for God. That's what Joseph did all those years in imprisonment. He wasn't just sitting around waiting for some caravan to come and, and, and help him to escape out of Egypt. He was loving God, day in, day out, praying to God, asking God, Lord, I'm in, this, I'm in this alien environment. I'm far away from home. My parents don't see me. My family don't see me. I, 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 I could get away with anything here. I could live whatever way I like. But Lord, I love you. And, and even though I can get away with things, Lord, I want... You to have my heart. Even though I could look on my phone or look in my computer and no one would see, no one would know. That's not the way I want to live, Lord, because You gave Your Son for my sins. He suffered cruel and unusual punishment from heaven and from hell upon Him for my sins. Lord, I, I, I don't want to walk in that path. Regardless of who knows. You see, that's... Where we start, that's where we begin to cultivate these things. And so that means you may have to change many habits. You may have to put blocking uh, devices on your computer. You may have to be very accountable to other people, painfully honest. The friend, those friends who may in be encouraging you, oh, go on, go ahead. It may be time to get rid of those friends, disassociate yourself. Psalm 1 talks about that. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly. We don't sit with the stand in the seat of uh, the, in the way of mockers. 
In other words, these are no longer your associations. I don't want... I'm a friend of all those who fear you, Lord. I, I, I'm a friend... I gather friends around me who have the same goals as I do. Who are cultivating the same heart as I am. See, that's, that's what... It's all about here. It's, the heart is at the center of Proverbs. Keep the heart with all vigilance. Keep the heart. You can't just do that with you and your Bible. You've got to get with other friends. You've got to cultivate relationships. You've got to be... You've got to... Do those things where you're cutting off the right hand and plucking out the eye to, to, in order to maintain that. And so Paul, for example, says in Philippians 4, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things. Well, to the contrary, he, he gives us positive practices. And those within the bonds of marriage. Again, like I say, the Bible is not backward about talking about sexual matters. It celebrates it. And, and, and the, the language that he uses here is extravagant and overflowing. When it talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife, it goes beyond anything that we could ever uh, dream of, of when we come with our preconceived notions of what the Bible says. But yet, it's within those bonds that God, those parameters that God has laid down. Just as we have a wood stove in our home. It's got a, it's got a, a handle on it. It's, it's, it's made of cast iron. And, and it's a certain distance from the wall. And, and, uh, and all of those things. And when you shut the handle, it shuts good and tight. Because the heat inside of it, if that fire got out, it would destroy your whole home. And so within, that these things are wonderful and glorious. And it's wonderful to look at a fire. It's wonderful to be warmed by a fire. And you can cook things on that fire, especially when the, when the, 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 the power goes out. You can do all sorts of things with it. But when that fire is let out of the, the stove, onto the floor, onto the carpet, or onto the curtains, it can just burn everything down to the ground. And so the Bible celebrates then these things within the confines of marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for your own, yourself alone and not for strangers with, with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And so where you see the destructive nature uh, in the earlier passages, here you see the reward of marital love. And uh, the verses at the heart of this chapter celebrate that very joy of sexual fidelity. The Bible doesn't hide its, the, the, the delight that God has 
for the purposes of human sexuality. And this delight is cast in the language of a, a, a refreshment. And of course, he uses that idea of water in streams because in that part of the world, wells, as we saw last week, were very important. You would have a, you would have a communal well where sometimes the only well would be the, the one in the center of town where people from all over would come to that well because it was so rare to have good, clean drinking water. And so he uses the highest and the best metaphor in describing marital love. He says, your wife is like a well, a cistern. And that, just as water is so precious in our society, so she is to be precious to you. So to call one's wife a spring of water was a compliment in, in that part of the world. It may not be a compliment uh, in this part of the world. We might have to use another metaphor uh, here on Prince Edward Island where water is qu quite plentiful. But in that part of the world where springs of water were very rare, clean running water, it was very appropriate. And to waste that water, to let that water simply flow in various directions would have been wrong. So to have one's own well was a special thing. And to have one's own wife and to celebrate that love within the confines of marriage was a wonderful thing. And so the Bible speaks of celebrating that love with intensity and regularity in these passages. Paul goes on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, to talk about that obligation that husbands and wives have to one another. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Another translation says, conjugal, talks about conjugal rights. And so that is one of the main ways in which that the sexual immorality is staved off by the young man or young woman when that expression is healthy within a marriage. And so he says categorically, do not deprive one another. If this is true of what the, the writer of Proverbs is saying, that not only is the delight self-evident, and he talks about intoxication and enjoyment and all those words, if that is true, then to withhold that from one another would be a sin against one another and against God. Do not therefore deprive one another. Paul was desperately interested in the purity of his people. That their as, as the Corinthians especially, were living in a hyper-sexualized society. Sexual immorality was rampant, wasn't it? It was all over the place. And so, what does Paul say? Well, he would say the same thing if he was speaking into our context, into our society, which is also rampant with, with uh, uh, sexuality all around. He says, guard your hearts, guard your marriage by ensuring that this model that he is giving here is being expressed 
in your lives. This is where we move beyond the awkwardness of talking about these things to say, look, there's something so important here that if we, if we paper over this, or if we paint over it and forget about it and not talk about it, we're falling prey to falling into sexual sin and being uh, 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 led away. If the marriage is not healthy, then that opens the couple up to all manner of sexual sin in the world. And so, Paul speaks about it openly. Proverbs speaks about it openly because they're desperately concerned not only for the marriage, not only for their sanctification, but for the good of society. The good of the world and the mandate that God has given to the man and to the woman to cultivate what God has given. So, as this is cultivated, as the writer is saying here to his son. He's giving him the talk about the birds and the bees here, as it were. And as he gives him this talk, he, and, and cultivates this within his mind, he is guarding against possible unfaithfulness by his son or by his daughter or whoever he's talking to. And he's also guarding against societal breakdown and the breakdown of the church and the breakdown of the family and all the rest of it. He's moving beyond. This is why in Malachi, the, the, the um, exiles who returned from exile, they were not faithful to their wives. They were divorcing some and remarrying others. That's why he says, Take therefore heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Because there was societal breakdown. God says you can't have a healthy society and the family be attacked. And so there is a real practical uh, 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 reason why the Bible addresses these matters. Why it moves us into territory that we would otherwise not comfortably talk about. But when we see it in those terms when we see it in terms of the dangers and the delights and what that means for us in terms of our original creation, we see why God speaks about it so openly and shows us the possibilities of what can happen when it goes wrong, but also the possibilities of what happens when we guard that, nourish it, and cultivate it. What kind of family, what kind of society we would have. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, we give thanks for this night and for the, Your Word. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would help us as we tackle these matters as a society. We know, Lord, that we stand on the cusp of, of uh, uh, the breakdown of the family, the redefining of male and female even, redefining the marriage as, as was been done in Western society. And Lord, how how practical these matters must be for us this evening. Help us to think honestly and openly with them. Help us, Lord, to also guard our hearts as we are beset with these things, whether it be on our phones or computers or uh, on our streaming services, wherever they are. Help us, O oh Father, for the, for the sake of our own hearts. 
for the sake of Your glory and for the sake of Your love and for the good of the world around us to take whatever steps necessary to f cultivate that which is good in our lives, good in our marriages, good in our homes, and to be on our guard, O oh God, at all times as to where our hearts can lead us. Continue with us now and be with us in our parting song of praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.